Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. Trade Bites is the podcast series that metaphorically fumbles under the dashboard for the release catch and looks under the bonnet of the dodgy old jalopy that is international trade policy. In today's podcast, we're broadening our horizons from the psychodramas surrounding Brexit and taking a more global view on some of the issues that affect world trade. Our focus today is on the two undisputed heavyweights of global commerce, the United States and China. For most of the past few years, they've been at each other's throats, with the Trump administration in Washington slapping a series of punitive tariffs on Chinese imports, and Beijing responding with its own retaliatory measures. The US accuses China of not playing fair when it comes to global trade. So what is it that China has done to incur the wrath of the White House, other than the small matter of a $300 billion trade surplus? What lies behind the tensions between Washington and Beijing? And perhaps more relevantly to us, why should we in Europe care about what's going on? Are there opportunities here that UK businesses can exploit? Or is it more likely that UK exporters will end up simply getting caught in the crossfire? What we need is some expert insight to explain what's going on and put it all in perspective. And luckily, that's exactly what we've got here today on Trade Bites. I'm joined here in Brighton by Jim Rollo. Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory and an Associate Fellow of Chatham House. And I'm also joined by Stephen Maguire, who is Dean of the University of Sussex Business School and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Gentlemen, welcome. Jim, the US and China are acknowledged to be the trade superpowers of our time, with the EU probably arguing that it's pretty close in third. What proportion, roughly speaking, of global trade do the US and China account for? And and, and how is that trade structured? We're talking services, goods, I, I guess a mixture of all of it, really. Well, Chris, the thing here is that it depends what it is you want to look at how, which is the most important of these operators in the world economy. The big three of the world, as you have said, are China, which is basically expressed as exports. That's where they come first. On imports, that's where the US comes first. And somewhere in the middle of all of that is the EU. Stephen Maguire, what lies behind the current trade tensions between Washington and Beijing? Is it just about China's trade surplus? No, it's not. Although the the trade surplus is significant, what has effectively happened over the last few years is that China has emerged from being seen as a market opportunity for the American economy to being seen as a market competitor or threat. And so the actual value of the surplus has declined in political salience and it's more what composes the surplus that's attracting attention. So the United States has made a lot of accusations about sharp practice by the Chinese. Does it have a point? I mean, China stands accused of various kinds of unfair trading practices, competitive currency devaluations, intellectual property theft. Is there evidence to support any of these allegations? It has been accepted, has come to be accepted that that Donald Trump and others have a point 
on this. In the area of intellectual property and technology transfer, for example, lots of companies have experienced difficulties in negotiating with the Chinese. The Chinese have been reluctant, and this is where I think the uh, agreement with the U.S. is significant. The Chinese have historically been very reluctant to relax their technology transfer requirements. And more and more companies, I think, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, have expressed a certain amount of frustration with that. And that inc- that's across the board. That includes Australian wine producers to producers of, of manufactured goods and high-technology goods. So there is a view outside of China that the Chinese have not been as diligent as they could and should have been in honoring their commitments to liberalize their economy. Now, it's probably fair to say that the world trading system within the WTO was never really designed with China's very particular system of state capitalism in mind. Is the system actually flexible enough to cope or are we going to have to make some accommodations, bend the rules perhaps even, to accommodate a country like China in the system? I think that's definitely so and has been so right from the moment that China joined the WTO. It really got a tough ride into the WTO, and it felt it got a rough ride. And as a result, it has basically said, we are not going to liberalize more in multilateral negotiations or whatever at the WTO. We've done our bit on joining, and we are a developing country, and 9% is not an excessive average tariff rate against that background. Just as Steve has pointed out on IPR, they want to get ahead. They've got a a mission for the Chinese people that transcends global institutions, I think, in that country. But one has to say that that has been partly responsible for the U.S.'s disenchantment with the WTO, you know, because it's not, it's, it's bending over, it seems, to the U.S. to favor the developing countries in general and China in particular. To me, it's quite interesting how the terms of debate have changed in the 20 years or so since China joined. I think there was a widespread expectation that China would become a market economy and that this was, and that the state capital model, we wouldn't have to worry about it because China would just liberalize and it would gradually look a lot more like us. And that's certainly not the case now. And Xi Jinping has been very clear that that's not the case. But the other factor is is a more recent one, which is Donald Trump and to extent even Boris Johnson and others are more interested in state capitalism themselves. So there's been a change in attitude towards state intervention, even within Western liberal states. And I don't really know where that leaves some of the founding principles of the WTO. I think that's exactly right. Um, We have a real problem in this that it moves us all in that direction. When it joined the WTO, China had about 4% of world trade in manufacturers and other goods. It's now 16 or 17%, pushing 17%. That seems to me to say that you're in a different part of the international space mm-hmm. now. And there's an issue for the rest of the world in a sense, which is a, a structural one in China, which is it has a huge population which means that even if only a small proportion of them, are, a small number of them, are high-tech innovators, that turns out to be a big number. It's a small proportion, but it's a big number. And really, they've got as many good people as we have. You know, someone recently has said something along the lines of they've got product engineers that will fill seven football pitches 
Whereas in the US, you'd be lucky to find three people who could take on that role. You know, that's no doubt exaggeration. But the point remains that they're more adept at and more able to exploit, how should I say, leading edge technology in a way that other developing countries haven't been able to do. And to some extent, we've seen it with India as well. It's certainly a remarkable economy, and the challenges which China has posed have been met by US President Trump in the way that he knows best, by um, imposing sanctions on some of the US imports from China. So what sort of trade sanctions have been put in place and how has China responded? Well, it's been tit for tat, hasn't it? So the United States began the process by slapping tariffs on a range of Chinese manufactured products. The Chinese retaliated in the ensuing months. And so it's a broad base of tariffs and it covers lots and lots of of products. And so it's affecting significant elements of of both economies. Interestingly, one of the most affected sectors in the U.S. is the U.S. farm economy. In general, a constituency that voted very heavily for Donald Trump when he first was elected. Yes, and there has been some efforts in recent times to ease the tensions between the two. Now, there was a a so-called phase one agreement or stage one agreement, which was concluded recently and which is currently being put into place so what was behind that, and will it actually defuse the situation? This was a successful effort of negotiation by the Trump administration and Xi Jinping to agree, well, as phase one implies, there will be a phase two. So this is a, a testing ground for some of the tariffs that I think were the most politically sensitive. So, for example, agriculture is specifically mentioned in the agreement, and it's meant to run for two years. Certain elements of manufactured goods are also cited as is technology transfer and financial services. So you can see in the text an effort to get an intermediate agreement that solves some of the problems associated with the imposition of tariffs, namely the hurt in the domestic economies. But Donald Trump can also show that he is being tough with China. The advantage of the timing is that we won't know whether this has worked or not until after Donald Trump is or is not re-elected in 2021. And the structure of this agreement states that China shall import a certain quantity of agricultural goods, for example. Is that in any way WTO compliant, that kind of mercantilist agreement? Does anyone care anymore? It's a good question. Uh, Do they care? I think some people do care because this may mean there's going to be trade diversion, and perhaps in quite a big way as a result of this away from existing exporters to China in favor of the US. I mean, there's even, I think, in there a target sum of trade, the value of trade to be expanded, 200 billion, I think, which is, you know, 200 billion here, 200 billion there, soon you're talking real money on this. So that's it. The other thing in this is that there's also an opening up of licenses in the financial services sector, which would be of presumably of considerable interest to the UK, but it seems to be restricted to US firms only. So there may be a, a hint of ambiguity about that. But that's a really big plus because it's getting banking licenses and insurance company licenses and so on that are the key to making money in the Chinese market, which reads as exports in trade. And it's trade and services, which is You know, above all, the U.S.'s big, along with high tech, 
big competitive edge, they're number one on or very close to number one on services. I agree with all that, though you can make an argument that the reason the Chinese gave any ground on financial services is because they've already, they've sorted that domestically. They have some of the largest banks in the world by market capitalization. Their online payment schemes like Alipay are already so widely adopted in China anyway. They've got the big first mover advantage. They now have the installed base of customers. So you can construct an argument that says that China is able to be sort of magnanimous on that because they've used the last 20 years of arguably not always fulfilling their commitments on liberalization to build up their domestic banks and financial uh, systems such that it can it could withstand the onslaught of the Americans anyway. That said, there is some genuine liberalization around international payments and the ability of American firms to bank in China. So that shouldn't be underestimated. Certainly in the run-up to the conclusion of this phase one agreement, China had been importing quite a lot less from the US in certain sectors because of the sanctions which China had imposed. So in what areas and in what sectors has the EU been able to benefit from this and step into the breach? It's not, not clear it's, that it has. Uh, yeah, I, both Jim and I looked at each other. I, I don't think there is much that can be done short term. So let me give you an example of, I mean, this is an extreme example, but it's illustrative. So China is committed to buy more manufactured goods, and that would include aircraft, which in a practical sense means Boeing. Boeing is not in a great position at the moment for other reasons to ramp up production or sales to Chinese airlines, but neither is Airbus. Airbus has about a seven-year backlog of booked work. So they can't take it. So European firms can't necessarily take advantage of the market opportunities in complex products like aircraft or others. And it's not clear the Chinese can actually, with all good faith, fulfill their commitments under the agreement anyway. In other areas, we are experiencing already interesting trade diversions. So soybeans is a good example. The U.S. will almost certainly resume being the largest Chinese exporter of soybeans in preference to Brazil. It's entirely possible that Canadian farmers would lose out badly. They had actually, Canadian farm exports had increased quite dramatically to China in the wake of the tariff escalation. And that's likely to be unwound as phase one comes into play. This injects an enormous amount of volatility into trading relationships around the world, just at the time the whole system is becoming more fragile. You've mentioned the global trading system and the, and the fragilities around that in the WTO, which we've already examined in a previous podcast in this series. I wonder whether you think the dispute between China and the US gives the European Union and going forward perhaps also the United Kingdom an opportunity to sort of establish itself as a bit of a leader in the international rules-based trading system. Is there opportunities here or does everyone lose out if China and America are punching each other in the face? I think in the, in the immediate term, I think the interesting question here is can they play both ends against the middle? Because they sympathize with the Chinese over the whole question of the American attack on the dispute settlement system in the WTO. Um, they shared Chinese uh, worries about that and what it might imply for the long-term position of the WTO. At the same time, it shares U.S.'s view on uh, technology transfer and, and, in their view, illegal copying of IPR. So there is that there. But it's very difficult to do that against two big, powerful players. 
you know, in some sense, three looks to be an unstable number of actors mm. in the global scene. You know, two seems to be quite a good number. Twenty, then nothing happens. It's just a question of maybe they'll be a bit risk averse and worry about the possibilities of damage to them if they get on the wrong side of both of them at the same time. That's you know the world they all dream of. It's sort of one side and other, both sides, and they're both looking to the EU to be a partner. Might not happen. I think. It is the case that the current global system lacks an effective and articulate leader or spokesperson for liberalized trade. I think a lot of countries are just, in a sense, running for cover, and they're being very, very careful about this. I also think a lot of corporate lobbies, I mean, corporations themselves, are, are relatively defensive and reticent to, to engage in this. I think one of the reasons why Donald Trump found it relatively easy to invoke tariffs was not just because he pushed the power of the executive to quite extraordinary limits. But the debate in the U.S. now is much more critical of firms in their role, alleged role, in outsourcing or lowering wages for American workers. So they've been on the wrong side of this argument. And it puts them in a difficult position to argue for sort of a return to the status quo of liberalization. So you don't see many firms in the U.S. or for that matter in the EU putting their head above the parapet and, and, and calling for a restoration of this. And it's not very clear-cut, but what it does seem to me is there's quite a lot of hints from various bits of the member states in the EU who are, you know, aren't natural liberalisers and don't feel particularly wedded to WTO rules and so on. You, know, you look at French comments around Brexit and so on, all sort of suggest that that line is not any more a bad taste that people would be tutting around them if they go that way. It's now getting to be the norm in the debate. There's a hint in the phase one, or particularly, I think, on the uh, investment side, that the arrangement with China is beginning to look like the arrangement with Mexico and Canada in some dimensions. And, you know, it might be that the EU is in the crosshairs now, as the next one, perhaps waiting until after the election, perhaps not waiting to after the election. It might start quite soon in that. So the EU could then find itself on the back foot rather than on, on a front foot. It is true. The U.S. likes to negotiate to a template, and that predates Donald Trump. Yeah. So to the extent that there is a sort of standardized model that's developing under USMCA and then China phase one, it's entirely conceivable that the EU could find itself and on the receiving end of that arrangement soon. USMCA being United States, Mexico, Canada. That's the, right. The, the follow-up to the NAFTA, NAFTA agreement. Sorry. Yes, yeah. We've spoken about IPR, intellectual property rights, being a, a, an irritant in this area. There's also a big question about data flows and data security when it comes to China, and in particular the role of companies like Huawei in the uh, installation of, for example, new broadband infrastructure. Is there a way forward on this that will satisfy everybody or do we have to resolve ourselves to years of arguments about whether Huawei on, and companies like that are genuinely competitive service providers or whether they are some way agents for the deeper Chinese state? I mean, we obviously don't know what the, the, the ins and outs of, of how they report back to Beijing, but... 
I get the feeling that this might be one of the new irritants which won't go away for quite a while. Well, I've no expertise here. I have one experience, which is trying to sell software in China. And the question came up about whether the software was on the cloud from the local party mm. man. And we said, no, it wasn't. He said, that's good, because if it was, it could be read, which if he thinks it can be read, it's because he's reading it. So I think there is must be a little bit of at least smoke with this fire. And Huawei clearly was a favoured instrument of the uh, Chinese administration. And it's the expansion from sort of assembling bits of phones at the end of the 90s, 2000s, to the end of the, the 2010s. You know, it was a, just a, an amazing expansion. No, it's true. And I don't think there's an answer that's going to satisfy everybody. We are going to have to choose and accept the, the consequences. It does, of course, point out the perils of a state capitalist model in that however much a company might plead that we are a distinct entity, we are uh, above board and we are honest, the nature of these relationships, and it's not unique to China. China happens to be particularly successful at doing it. But that's the flaw with the state capitalism model anyway because you can never get it quite entirely out of your head that what this company does is going to be somehow make its way back or somehow is going to be reported uh, back centrally. And it's only become going to become more pointed as we become ever more reliant on data flows. Now, there is going to be a U.S. presidential election at the end of this year. If there were to be a change of president at that point, would that materially change U.S. trade relations? I, the first approximation, I would say no. Obama was no liberal, starry-eyed liberal on the economic front. I mean, he did a really good job in recovery from the uh, financial crisis. Um, but on trade, he wasn't that different from Trump. The approach to it was a little bit gentler and it was not so brutal as Trump. But some of the effects, they had some tariffs going on, on approaching hundreds of percents. So I don't think, and, and this is a more left-wing card of... Um, Joe Biden's the sort of right-winger in this. I don't think we'll see much change in all of this. USTR is also a bit of a through train on this. So there'll be people there who know how to make the game work. I mean, if you take the view that the road to the White House for the Democrats runs through a lot of northeastern, midwestern, northeastern states that have lost lots of manufacturing jobs for whatever reason, mm -hmm. You are not going to win those people back by appearing to backpedal on the relationship with China now. So I would agree with Jim. I don't see much scope, actually, for unwinding this. The rhetoric might change. President Trump is almost uniquely sort of inflammatory in his language. But I, I think the underlying policy response has actually been in train for quite some time, as Jim intimates. And we're just seeing a particularly significant evidence of it at the moment. We can't talk about China without mentioning coronavirus, COVID-19. We're obviously in the early days, possibly in the early days of a quite serious outbreak of this virus. We've seen already some relaxation of some of China's tariffs on US imports, certainly for, for sort of medical products and so on. It's early days, but do you think a big outbreak could actually change the terms of trade in any way for between US and China? I think when the trade war first broke out, there was a lot of suggestion that companies would move quickly to relocate out of China. 
And I think the evidence for a mass relocation just was not there because it's very costly and it's time-consuming. And I think a lot of firms for stage one of the trade war were going to stay put. If the coronavirus is persistent and, and we have these ongoing problems, then I think you will see a significant change in both supply chains with an attendant change in the U.S.-China dynamic. They will need each other more than they do now. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but I think one thing we haven't really spoken about is the UK, which is just taking its place as a newly independent player on the global trading stage as Brexit works its way through. What stance should Britain take towards China and and what can the US learn perhaps from the, the US experience? Well, I think the first thing you have to grasp is that the UK has two and a half percent of world trade in uh, goods and about six and a half percent in services. Those are much smaller numbers than the EU or the US or to a degree China itself. So the size differential will be there. The Chinese are not very interested in opening up so far bilaterally. They've always been very cautious. If you look at the Swiss agreement that they have, 10 years to bring in quite a lot of liberalization that allows them to take advantage of electric cars and various other things in the meantime so that they can move on from there. So I'm not convinced that we'll have an easy role as some sort of Greeks to Chinese Romans in this story. I think we'll scrabble to have a decent thing. I mean, one thing very simple, if you look at the top 10 Chinese exports to the UK, it's dominated by things that are covered by the International Technology Agreement, which means there's already zero tariffs there. So, you know, there's not much there. Where they want access might be clothing and footwear. Uh, That has its own problems for us here, not as acute as, say, in Italy, but we won't be very different from what we were in the EU against that background. So it's not clear to me that there's a bargain there for the Chinese. You know, they might see us as a Trojan horse. You know, the French will see us as everyone's Trojan horse. I think if history um, continues in its usual way in this. So my own guess is that it's going to be hard work. It's going to be hard work with any of the big players. We're finding already it's potentially hard work with the EU. Um, we're talking about being tough with the US. Um, interesting approach. And we haven't really focused on China yeah, even though that's obviously the big um, emerging market that we haven't got access to now. And, and maybe we will get a deal with them again. But as with the deal, potential deal with the US, it's a question of whether it's got much content. I think that's right. I think for me, the British government will do better the more understated and low-key it is. Uh, the more it tries to ramp this up as a big initiative, I think it will backfire because the asymmetry in power and need of an agreement is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. We also happen to have com- uh, comparative and competitive advantage in things they already want to protect or they're already good at or are already covered by the U.S. Phase One agreement like yeah. financial services. So it's difficult to know where the U.K. goes with this. So I think a, a modest approach is admitting that incremental liberalization mm-hmm. might be useful on a bilateral basis. 
Fortunately, the Chinese don't pose some of the problems that, say, India would in terms of human uh, flows of individuals uh, mm-hmm. under the services agreement. So there is some, uh, something to take away from this. Well, there we have to wrap up our podcast today. General, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Many thanks to my guests today, to Stephen Maguire and to Jim Rollo. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.